The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The legal firestorm has only intensified over President Donald Trump's temporary travel ban for people from seven Muslim-majority nations. Late Friday, U.S. District Judge James Robart in Washington state blocked Trump's executive order nationwide. That order cleared the way for the arrival into the U.S. of people who had been barred from entering since the travel ban took effect a week earlier. It also provoked angry tweets from the president, who referred to Robart as a, quote, so-called judge, as well as this more measured response from Vice President Mike Pence on Fox News Sunday. We don't appoint judges to our district courts to conduct foreign policy or to make decisions about our national security. Under statutory law and under the Constitution, that authority belongs to the President of the United States. The administration is now asking a federal appeals court to reinstate the travel ban, and should they lose, both sides are poised to turn to the U.S. Supreme Court in what looms as the Trump administration's first showdown there. With us to talk about the case and the issues are Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. He's the former Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Justice Department's Office of Immigration Litigation. And James Copeland, a Senior Fellow and Director of Legal Policy at the Manhattan Institute. Welcome to you both. Leon, could you start just by getting us up to speed on where things stand in this legal fight? We're waiting on the, the, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to do what exactly? Correct. There is a uh, oh, and good afternoon. There is a uh, schedule that's been laid out right now for briefing of the case, which is that by 6 p.m. today, the briefing will be fully done in the Ninth Circuit uh, on this motion for an emergency motion for a stay of the district court's decision. What is essentially an attempt to cancel the district court's decision, and then theoretically, a decision could come out any time after 6 p.m. today, Eastern Time. Uh, there could be argument scheduled. The decision could be made on the papers. Uh, a decision could be made today. It could be made tomorrow, or it could be delayed. It, it's up to the court. And at the same time, simultaneously, the district court is proceeding with a briefing schedule that is also asking for a briefing schedule uh, by 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time, so 8 o'clock Eastern Time uh, for to move from what's called the temporary restraining order that the court issued to a larger preliminary injunction analysis uh, to determine whether it's going to keep this order for a longer period while the entire merits of the case are uh, adjudicated. So there's briefing on both tracks, on both the district court in Seattle still and on the appellate court in, uh, in uh, San Francisco. Jim, how quickly, you know, once the Ninth Circuit rules, would we expect that this could get to the Supreme Court? My guess is it could be quite quick, uh, and the reason is uh, this is, is obviously going to be a very hot-button issue. So um, what, what the Trump administration would, I presume we 
do immediately were they to lose to lose at the Ninth Circuit is try to get some sort of emergency action by the Supreme Court. Now, would the Supreme Court be likely to do that is a very different question. Um, but 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 my guess is there'd be a, a, a quite a quick move on it. I mean, these are all very sorts of quick moves. Normally, courts take a long time to decide things, right? But uh, when you have something like a TRO, which is an ex parte type of of a move like this before you've had any sort of briefing, et cetera, you know, things can move very quickly. And, and it, what the Ninth Circuit panel that drew this case was trying to do was you know, look at this, and uh, they, they wanted to see briefing before they, they made a call one way or the other here. My guess is the Supreme Court might do the same thing, but we'd see very quick action on either side uh, with an adverse ruling. If, if I could just make one, if I could make one caveat to that, the only thing I will say is typically, and it obviously there's no rules that apply here. You you could have it, you could have it exactly as was described. You typically wouldn't want to appeal to the Supreme Court a TRO denial or grant. You would want to wait till the preliminary injunction itself was granted or denied, so you'd have a little bit more of a fulsome record. But having said that. Uh, an appeal certainly could be filed, and the Supreme Court could make a, a decision about whether it wanted to hear the TRO or wait for the uh, preliminary injunction. But, but, but just to be clear, Leanne, and, and tell me if I'm if you don't think I have this this correct. Um, what what I would anticipate is that the after the Ninth Circuit acts today, tomorrow, whenever it does, there would be a request to the Supreme Court for an emergency action, uh, not an actual cert petition that would ask ask the court to take up the case, but just something that asks the court either to. Uh, uh, stay the trial judge's decision, reinstate this ban, or sure. to lift the stay that the Ninth Circuit issued? Sure. No, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And then the, the the question would be whether you'd end up in the same 4-4 stalemate that you essentially saw in the uh, Texas litigation, and that would basically bring us back to this preliminary injunction mode that is where I, that's where I anticipate us heading. But, you know, I'm probably getting ahead of the questioning here, so I'll stop. I, I, I tend to agree with that, too, by the way. I think I think the Supreme Court would wait until there's a preliminary injunction before it would move, probably, right? Well, Jim, let, let's get into the, the actual merits of this, of this case and, and the legal challenge to the order. What, what are the constitutional arguments here against the executive order? Sure. And, and, and you know, I want to emphasize, in my opinion, this is largely a, an issue of first impression. So I think anyone on either side trying to say very, very vigorously, oh, this is a clear slam dunk, uh, is probably wrong. Um, you know, they, they may be right, but they're reading tea leaves. In other words, I don't think there's a clear answer here. What, what the states here are arguing uh, is really two parts of the Constitution are being violated. One is the Equal Protection Clause uh, of the four. 14th Amendment, but, but which applies back through the Fifth Amendment to the, 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 the federal government, uh, and basically that the, the order is discriminating on the basis of religion and national origin. The second claim is the establishment cause of the First Amendment, which says Congress will make no, no law respecting an establishment of religion and saying that because there is a religious element here within this executive order, that that's, that's being violated. 
We're talking about the court fight over President Donald Trump's uh, travel ban, and our guests are Leanne Fresco of Holland and Knight and James Copeland of the Manhattan Institute. And I want to let our listeners know that uh, we may be cutting away because the president is scheduled to speak in just a few minutes. He is making his first visit to uh, the U.S. Central Command uh, in Tampa, Florida at McDill Air Force Base, uh, scheduled to start speaking momentarily. Uh, Jim Copeland, let me. Um, we, we were talking about the constitutional questions here a minute ago. Let me ask you a statutory question. There are, are a couple different statutes. One from 19, I think, 52 says that the president has broad power to exclude any class of alien from the country. And then there's another one a few decades later that says uh, the president can't discriminate on various bases, including religion, when it comes to giving out. Or, excuse me, including national origin when it comes to uh, giving out. Visas. Can you sort of clarify how those two statutes work together? Yeah, they're, they're two different statutes, and, and people are making assertions about these. Uh, my, my best reading of it is, uh, and normally courts are inclined to read statutes such that there's not a conflict. So uh, the, the, the section governing uh, presidential authority over admission of aliens, which is, is 8 U.S.C. Section 1182, uh, is, is in one section of, of, of the code governing the immigration law. The other section governs the granting of immigrant visas, and that was passed in 1965. And basically before that point, uh, under U.S. law, there was significant national origin, origin discrimination in the granting of visas premised on specifically preferencing the European countries by and large. Uh, and, and at that point in time, uh, there was a shift to saying, well, no, we're not going to preference any one country and national origin. I, I think the courts are likely to read these as, as not particularly in conflict. In other words, as long as they, I mean, I, I think if the president of the United States were to engage in sort of a permanent restructuring of, of the visa allocation process that was in contravention of the congressional statute, he'd have a problem. Problem. But when it comes to that sort of temporary denial of admission for a class of aliens, which is specifically authorized in another section of the code, I, I mean, I think the president putting those constitutional arguments to the side or any sort of contractual or due process claims, uh, you know, I think when it comes to a, a conflict of laws type of question between these two provisions of the code, the president's on pretty strong ground there. Leon, one thing the president has done that was a little unexpected, shall we say, was when he said about the judge out west uh, who enjoined the order, they called him a so-called judge and attacked him and said that you know he and the judiciary are going to be responsible for anything that goes wrong now. How might that impact this litigation? Very difficult if you are a line attorney who's a career attorney at the Department of Justice who isn't a political appointee to go into court anytime anybody is commenting on the litigation because every one of those comments can be used in the litigation and oftentimes the the opposing party will cite those comments back to the court and it's it, it, it creates a very uncomfortable position for the attorney who's just trying to argue the law based on the statutes before them to have this in the backdrop uh, the, the best analogy I can come up with was uh, the Texas case that was challenging the President Obama's deferred action program uh, 
where there the judge was actually affirmatively reading the newspaper and citing things that the judge could find anywhere in the newspaper to support arguments that the judge wanted to make. And there, there was actually no no one commenting from the Justice Department or the White House on the litigation itself. So here, if a judge was inclined to do that, the judge would have much more uh, much more things to cite. Uh, and so that makes it always, I think, much more complicated for the attorneys. There is a lot more to talk about on this issue, but unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you to our guests, Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight, James Copeland of the Manhattan Institute, talking about Donald Trump's uh, travel ban for, for people from seven mostly Muslim countries. Coming up on Bloomberg Law, we talk to Connecticut Attorney General George Jepson. Uh, he's one of the attorneys general who is planning on taking on the Trump administration. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.